Hello and welcome back to the Christians in Sport podcast. Thanks so much for listening in these last few weeks as we've started up Series 7. As always, uh, we would love you to hit subscribe uh, to get episodes each week. And if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps others find us. Now, it's Mental Health Awareness Week at the moment in the UK. And so we want to highlight this important issue as we listen into a conversation recorded last autumn as part of our new video series, More Than Sport. In The Mask, broadcaster John Paul Davis is joined by Michael Bennett, who following the untimely death of Gary Speed was appointed Director of Player Welfare for the PFA. We're then going to hear from Dano Graham Daniels, a director at Cambridge United, as well as General Director at Christians in Sport. Both have taken PhD research into mental health and identity in elite sport, as well as working with athletes on the ground. It's a really helpful, at times sobering conversation. So let's now have a listen. Someone once said that sport is life with the volume turned up. We live in unsettling times and the future of sport and life as we know it is uncertain. So for me, I began to enjoy football more once I was able to recognise that I was more than a footballer. The anxiety levels from the top of the businesses to the bottom are higher than I've ever seen in my working life. I will go to all, all to whom you call me. So whenever an individual calls me to get support, I won't second guess it, I'll just go. When we've got to there, that's, that's how you start to close the gap. Look in the mirror, not out the window. Welcome to More Than Sport. A very warm welcome to More Than Sport. Do you know, in my 20 years in the police and broadcasting, I can't remember a more emotionally charged evening than the night I presented the Gary Speed Memorial match in February 2012. The environment at the Cardiff City Stadium that night was charged with emotion, and the question that hung in the air was why? It's a question that we all ask ourselves, isn't it? Why is life so complex? Why do certain things happen? Why is peace so hard to find? October the 10th is World Mental Health Day, and this month we're looking at mental health in the world of sport, and we're going to be joined by Michael Bennett, who is appointed Director of Player Welfare for the PFA in the days following Gary Speed's untimely death. And he's a man who knows all about the ups and downs of professional sport, having made more than 180 appearances in the Football League and played for England under-19s. But his route into football was not your typical one. So for me, um, my story in coming to football is very, very different to the normal story of, of, of people in the football, in football industry. I had no aspirations to be a professional footballer. Uh, I just played football to keep out of trouble. My idea was to go to sixth form college, do my A-levels and go to university as far away from my family as possible to get up to no good for three years. That was, that was the plan. Um, but obviously I got scouted at Charlton at 16. Now, you're talking about someone who's not been a professional game at all until 16. So I walk into... Charlton's uh, training ground, uh, a very open person, 
a very person loves to talk and share that's just my nature uh, and you go into this pressurized environment um the idea for me was to to play football and enjoy it um and that was fun until i got into the first team at 17 and then the pressure just rose a thousand percent and i find it very very difficult to deal with the pressure because again as i said you know there wasn't any any avenue to offload what i was feeling so for me i went into football uh it began i began to have to put on a mask uh you know the banter and try to fit into this environment and that was very very difficult for me john paul um emotionally draining um and i found it very very difficult so whilst at charlton the latter part of my Charlton career i sustained a real bad knee injury uh, an aco injury uh, and was out for nine months with that injury and in that time i really lost the love of the game and really lost the love of of of, of being in the game because i felt like i was isolated outside of the bubble as it were because the players that were fit were the ones getting attention and, and i wasn't getting that attention and so I kind of lost my self-identity, self-worth, if you want to do that. And then obviously I got a move to Wimbledon um, and was hoping that that would rekindle my love for the game. But after the first six months, which went really, really well, uh, the next 18 months were an absolute nightmare and, 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 and truly just lost, lost the love of the game. Uh, and, and then it was a case of just trying to find myself in this, in this kind of life space um, and spoke to a couple of friends who were Christians and, and went down and spoke to them and listened to them and then found myself, you know, moving towards faith and, and then committing myself to Christ. And then my kind of whole concept around football changed. So for me, I began to enjoy football more once I was able to recognise that I was more than a footballer uh, and my faith enabled me to do that. So your director of player welfare for the PFA have been since the 2011-12 season. Just tell us how you getting into that position came about. And so what happened was, you know, the phone uh, then began to ring off the chain, John Paul, in regards to players uh, wanting support. I, I think mainly because they couldn't get their heads around why a high-profile man manager like uh, Gary Speed, who managed in his country, Wales, and a top professional footballer had taken his life. And I think they then realised that they needed support themselves. So I then kind of spoke with Gordon Taylor, CEO, and just made him aware of what my thoughts were in regards to the importance of offering emotional support to players. We're aware that players get a lot of physical support from football clubs, um, but no emotional support was being given to them. So the idea was to implement a player welfare department that solely looked at the emotional aspects of the game for players in a private and confidential setting, away from family, away from the football club, uh, and, and they could just offload issues that were going on. So that's how the player welfare department came into fruition. And you're a man, clearly, um, Michael, who, who's passionate about helping other footballers with their mental health. Most of your work goes under the radar but I think it's fair to say there's very few people who understand mental health among professional footballers in the UK as you do so much so that you 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 are a trained counsellor and you did the PhD on this issue and the central question of the PhD was trying to understand what a footballer's experience of mental health is actually like so so what did you discover? So my whole kind of PhD was around the understanding lived experience of players uh, around mental health and just trying to get them to to, to express themselves from their experience, what was going on for them, rather than trying to work out what I think they were saying. So we did that, and and the four subordinate themes that came out of those uh, those um, in, uh, interviews were, one was the roller coaster, 
you know, roller coasters of emotions, the ups and downs of emotions that they go through. Second one was the mask, where you know they've, they've had to put a mask on to fit into into the football environment or just to just to cover up stuff that was going on. Uh, the, the, the third one was uh, the medicalized medicalized self, which is more based around the kind of performance side of things and, and having to you know people looking at the performance side rather than actually looking at you. And and, and, the, and the last one was. Uh, the snowball effect uh, and the snowball was you know this thing where the snowball kind of takes over and runs away from you and it's very cold and you're not in control so they were the four superordinate themes that kind of came out of the kind of research that I did with the players so pretty holistic um a study yes very much holistic study very much wanted to kind of you know have a, have a mixed bag of individuals in there from the Premier League right right down to the Div, Div 2 uh, and the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship as well so we had 12 uh, individuals participating in it you know ethnicity was a, a big thing as well you know we, we wanted to have you know black and black and Asian minorities involved in it and we wanted the, the, the women to be part of it as well because a lot of research that I saw John Paul was mainly around male men in football transitioning or injuries and I wanted to have, offer something different that was more about the lived experience of these individuals but also from a different ethnicity and agenda as well. As that that I guess sharing of information and being vulnerable being something that is improving in recent years or not? Yeah I mean if, you know, yeah I mean we've, we've, I think the biggest key for me has, has been the, the players that have come forward and shared their experiences so you know we want to name a few um, the original guys were Chris uh, Carlisle, Leon McKenzie, Jason Brown, Kelly Smith, uh, and then you had the likes of Chris Kirkland and, and, and recently Danny Rose and Peter Crouch, and even Gary Southgate talked about his experience of mental health about you know the '96 penalty miss that we went through. Um, so they're just a number of people that are, you know I can, I can touch on, and they're sharing their experience. You know, what's the younger generation watching these individuals sharing their experiences around their mental health and well-being has been really, really productive and really, really beneficial for the younger generation looking at mental health as it be normal and not something that you know it's a stigma or taboo so you know that's been really really beneficial we also got to remember uh we haven't mentioned about the wso1 women's super league and about how that's kind of uh growing daily and evolving uh, again you know these girls are professional players but are, are, are earning nowhere near the money that the the, the 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 men are earning and and some of them are part-time so again you know these girls are, are still some of them are still studying some are still you know working part-time jobs you know these are the, the other areas that the, the, the public don't see and don't understand the impact it has on them plenty listening will be struggling with some if not all of the issues that you've mentioned what advice do you give to them in your role when people call you up and say look i'm struggling how do you guide them so for me the initial when they make that initial pull john call john paul sorry that for me is the massive first step that's 50 percent of the issue dealt with because they would usually be thinking about shall i shan't i what if i do what they're going to think about me and all those sort of negative connotations fear is a massive thing you know fear of failure self-identity who am i the whole footballing thing is polarized about them being a professional footballer so when they make that phone call initially what i try to do john paul is try to put them at ease and make them aware, look, you've made this phone call, well done. Now let's look at how we can help you moving forward in supporting you with the presenting issues that you may bring to the table. And from, from a PFA perspective, you must, I mean, you must be inundated in terms of uh, the people contacting you for help. Is there enough support, do you think, to meet the needs at the moment and certainly as we look to, to the days ahead? The support's there for the players. The support's there emotionally 
mentally, financially, it's there for the players. Um, it's just making the players aware of what support's available to them and how to access it. We started with 28 therapists in 2012. We now have 200 plus therapists around the country. Um, and that's growing. You know, the more people are coming on board wanting to offer their services. We have to look at where they're living and what areas they're working in to offer that service. So we have more than enough therapists to deal with the current climate. Um, I think by us being able to do the therapy over Skype and over FaceTime and over Zoom and Teams or whatever else they're using nowadays, um, it makes it much more easier and accessible to get the relevant therapist for a particular individual who's got a particular presenting issue, i.e. if you've got a gambling problem and you live in, I don't know, Yeovil, for instance, you know, what we're able to do now is, is find a therapist that is an expert in gambling and they may live in London. But because they're doing it over the, over the laptop, you'll get an expert person working with these individuals. So that's been really, really beneficial uh, during lockdown. And there have been some positives in lockdown, and not so much all negative. Michael, you're, you're clearly very passionate about helping others. You, you've, you've got a big heart. You, you effectively have given over your working life to helping others who are struggling. Why? Um, what motivates you? The, the man upstairs had a plan for me that, that's put me on this pathway here now. Um, so for me, you know, I've got this saying that, you know, um, I will go to all, all to whom you call me. So whenever an individual calls me to get support, I won't second guess it, I'll just go. Um, I'm blessed that I wake up every day and I'm looking forward to the day. Uh, I know a lot of people can't say that. So I recognise that I've been given a, a real blessing to work in this area and work with individuals and support individuals around their emotional wellbeing needs and just help them over particular hubs that they're going through. It's, it's a blessing, mate, and I'm just thoroughly blessed that I'm doing this work. Great to hear a little bit about Michael Bennett's story and what he's doing with the PFA. Well, I'm joined by Graeme Daniels, otherwise known as Dano. Uh, Michael, working for the PFA in really worrying times, Dano, um, times when a lot of people in sport don't know what the future holds, whether the clubs and the teams that they represent are going to be in business next year. You are a director at Lead to Cambridge. So just give us a little bit of an insight to what people are going through there. Well, we're right in the middle of it. Uh, at the moment, games are being called off, certainly in Leagues 1 and 2. And therefore, we're saying to ourselves, well, what if eight games are called off next week? When does the season end? When do we draw lines? How can we play? So there are so many uncertainties right in front of us in the calendar. Secondly, salary caps and squad limits mean that pay is dropped. People are earning less. And I've never seen this many players out of work, really good players out of work. So uh, the anxiety levels from the top of the businesses to the bottom are higher than I've ever seen in my working life over a long time. Yeah, circumstances that, that nobody could have foreseen even a few months ago. Now, you're a sociologist and theologian. Uh, Michael is a psychologist and a counsellor. So you both have seen firsthand the progress that has been made since the untimely death of Gary Speed in football and indeed in sport in dealing with mental health. But one of the things that really struck me about Michael's PhD was this concept of the mask, whether it's a Premier League footballer or a League Two footballer or a Women's Super League or Championship footballer, regardless of gender or race, players feel that they have to wear this mask. Why? 
Well, I think that there are two fundamental reasons why a mask is worn, the picture of a mask fits. Number one, if you're a professional athlete, of course, you are in front of a, a group of thousands of people who don't know you and they can never know you. They will only be able to judge you as a rule by your performance on match day and whether it was up to the mark. So inevitably there's a mask there. That, that's unavoidable. You can't relate to thousands of people. I think the more serious mask is the way you have to present yourself amongst your peers at the changing in the changing room at the training ground. So you have to wear a mask at work that plays the game. The game of elite sport normally encapsulates two facets within the changing room. Number one, the head coach, the manager, the boss. If you can't keep them happy, you're not playing. So you better work out what they want from you to show the kind of behaviors that they like. And secondly, your peers. What is the culture amongst peers? How does the interaction work in this woman's dressing room or this guy's dressing room? And what does it take to fit in? So on one level, you have to go to work. Let's say you're injured or you're carrying an injury and you really don't want anyone to know because you need to play Saturday because you can't lose your place. Oh my word. You've got to be in there with the banter and the laughter and the, yeah, fine gaffer and all that. And inside you're thinking, am I fit enough? Can I play? I can't tell. Shall I tell him it's a soft tissue? Can I get through it? Well, that's enough pressure when you're playing well. When you're not playing well, when you're dropped, when you're not in the team, when you've been out injured for ages, you've still got to go into work and say, come on, let's get a result. Yeah. And inside your heart's breaking. Notwithstanding if you've got problems at home. So actually, that's what a mask looks like. It's, it's doing what you've got to do when the weight of the world's on your shoulders and the very people that you've got to put the mask on for are your colleagues. That's stress. And spanning that gap between mask and reality is the whole question of identity. Who am I really? And we fill that gap with lots of different behaviours, whether it's working incessantly hard to try and prove our worth, whether it's drinking excessively or taking drugs, maybe having a fling, porn. And those things maybe numb the pain for a bit. We might blame others. That might be the way we fill the gap. But that, that is tiring. So how do I close that gap permanently? Well, I think there are stages to closing the gap. And, and let's be aware now, this is a complex issue. It's a clinical issue in many cases. So we need to be careful about generalizing. And I think counseling uh, of all levels and standards when done professionally assists enormously in that process. But I, I'm certainly confident in being a specialist here in my own field and saying that mask always comes off when we walk through the front door. Sociologically, we stop, we interact with different people or no one, so the mask's off. There's an old saying in sport that says, look in the mirror before you look out of the window. It's our instinct to come home, hang our mask up with our coat, and then say, ah, oh, at last, the real me can't stand it at that club, can't stand it with those athletes, can't stand that manager. All that is easy. The real me complains about everybody else. There's another facet to taking a mask off. It's hanging it up and it's looking straight in the mirror in the hallway and looking at the real me. That, looking at the real me, is to expose 
my responsibility for my fractures rather than blaming others when you get to there. And I thought Michael Bennett captured this well. Generally, we'll pick up the phone up to look for help to him in his example when we've got to there. That's, that's how you start to close the gap. Look in the mirror, not out the window when your mask's off. Okay, so I hear what you're saying and I like the idea in a sense of taking off the mask, but I'm also aware that I've got a lot to lose. So now I've got to take the mask off, risk being seen for who I am. Actually, I'm not so sure at times I'm, I'm all that much of a fan of myself. So why is it so important to take this mask off? Seems to me, John, that the risk of not doing it is so much greater than continuing to find ways to alleviate it or not to face your vulnerabilities. The great movement in professional sport, particularly on in society in the last five to 10 years, has been enough people of some stature saying, no, no, I'm really vulnerable. And I promise you, know yourself, learn about yourself, and that's your best chance of getting equilibrium. Okay, so I, I, I'll take the mask I'll take the mask off. And are you saying then that it is possible to live a life where I'm not dictated to by my circumstance, however bad they may be, or worse, however good they may be, and I'm still feeling pretty rubbish, and also live a life where I'm, I'm not dictated to by my performance or what other people think about me? The people pleaser. Well, there's certainly no chance in sport whatsoever that circumstances are going to get easier. Sport is absolutely dominated by four funerals and a wedding and not the other way around. That is sport. So you're never going to escape that. The external pressure, never, never. I think there are two critical factors that I've seen over 30 years in sport in my little area of thinking about mental health, which is a theological approach. I've met Christian coaches and managers and players and officials for years and years. I think I would boil down this whole issue of the mask to two things. Number one, when you do look in the mirror, not out of the window, what you see is a vulnerable human being. The more you're willing to acknowledge it and face it, the better. The faith angle is when you become aware, often through knowing another Christian, that there is a God who knows you are like that. In fact, he knows better than anyone you're like that. And he has worked you out because he made you. And then this amazing moment, I'd call it a moment of satisfaction when it dawns on you that not only does he know you, but he loves you so much that even in that fractured, rebellious position against the creator who made you, he will go to any lengths to restore a relationship with you. But somehow, satisfaction develops a security, a safety, which is a very wonderful thing to experience in the transient world of elite sport. I'm safe even when it goes wrong because somebody is for me, whether I'm winning or losing. And when that penny drops over weeks, months, or even years, an athlete or a coach will say, oh my gosh, I need never be judged by my performance ever again in my whole life because the one person who needs to judge me the most is willing to liberate me 
and love me whether I win or lose. That is electric. I, I, I would call it a satisfaction that is unachievable in any other way. Dano, thanks so much. And thank you for watching More Than Sport. Well, good. Hopefully that was a really helpful conversation to listen into. Uh, as we said, if this is something you're struggling with, then please do speak up. You can find a couple of episodes of More Than Sport we've done. Uh, done one here on the mask on mental health, one on racism in professional sport as well, called No More. You can find all that at morethansport.watch. We'll see you next week when we have another chat on the Christians in Sport podcast with uh, sports people about what it's like to be a Christian in the world of sport. So we'll see you again soon. Do pass on the podcast to anyone else you think might be interested in listening. Ta-ra.